before I begin, I just wanted to uh, <clears throat> dedicate this shear in memory of Rini Moko, Regina Bas, Yusef Reuven. Uh, the shear should be a Aliyah's uh, Neshama, and uh, certainly a Schus for this Neshama. Anyway. What was that? Emma. What? I should continue, good. Okay. <clears throat> now, I've been speaking a lot uh, about uh, the beginning of Lech Lecho and by the Mabel and so on. And that's really the beginning of the, uh, the task that has been assigned to mankind. And then ultimately we know that it's been switched to the Jewish people. And I had gotten, uh, I've gone into that uh, quite extensively. But I really, I would like, what I'd like to do is there's a lot of confusion, you know, in terms of what exactly goes into what is called a creation. You know, so really the types of shum that I've been given is called blueprint uh, material. Now, we know what blueprint is. That's the uh, material that you put down and you make uh, the architectural plans. It comes in some type of a blueprint. Well, it's the same idea. The concept of creation has a blueprint, you see. And it's very worthwhile, especially, you know, we're talking about Avram Avinu, and we're talking about the Jewish people. What exactly is the blueprint of creation? In other words, when you look at a building, for instance, you see, and you look at the blueprint of that building, then you notice that there are different sections of the building or different areas, and certainly there are different components. You know, you have the, uh, the walls, the living space, you have the electrical system, you have the plumbing system, you know, brings water in, takes out waste and so on, you know. Uh, you have air conditioning, heat. There, any, any kind of a, a building, for instance, uh, has extensive uh, different uh, areas or components of the building. Well, the same thing with creation. So it's really worthwhile, and it will be a very good organizing concept to understand what goes into creation what is in the blueprint of creation that God made? And uh, it'll give you a much greater perspective about what's involved. And of course, each one of these ideas can be talked about extensively. But certainly it's worthwhile to look at the scope of creation, especially what is required for God to create to carry on the entire program, you see? I mean, it's a massive project, if we want to use that word, you see? And therefore, it has this project as a whole program. But it also has components. It has things that have to be made, have to become part of this blueprint or this entire creation 
in order for it to work successfully. So it's certainly worthwhile to have a handle on what are the components of the Bria, of the creation itself. So I, I, I thought that it would be very useful to talk a little about each one of these components. And of course, like I say, each one of the components can be easily, you know, a shear or many shearum and so on. But it's certainly worthwhile to look at the big picture and to look at the entire overlay scope of what constitutes or what are the necessary items that have to go into a creation. You know, and uh, that's, like I say, very important, especially when you talk about the beginning of the Chumash. And a lot of people really don't have the, an idea of what constitutes a blueprint of creation. And therefore, many things get muddled, they get confusing. Uh, but it's really very much of these things becomes distinct. So, what's the first thing we would want to talk about? Well, <clears throat> we know, basically, that the one who created everything of course, is the Rabboni Shalom, God. So he clearly is the producer of everything. And he, of course, made the entire creation. Now, before creation, was there anything that coexisted with God that didn't need to be created? It's a very interesting question, you see. <clears throat> so the question we ask then is exactly what is created you see, what exactly did Kant create? And it's worthwhile just to reflect that there are really three things that God made, or these are the three basic prerequisites that God created before he actually made the entire universe or creation. What are they, you see? Well, basically, uh, I always like to say... <clears throat> There are, if I remember correctly, there are seven fundamental laws or fundamental phenomena that God made. And in many ways, these comprise the fabric of the whole creation. So let's take a look. One, there's matter. Matter is substance, material. It is a thing, matter. So that's the first thing he made. The concept of matter, you see. The second thing he made is energy. Now nobody really knows what energy is. But we do know that when energy and matter are combined, you have what's called motion. Nobody knows what energy is. All we see is matter or a thing in motion. What's making it move? And the answer is energy. So energy is something that nobody's ever seen. You really, it's very hard to define. And it has its rules, its regulations. But you have these two phenomena. You have the phenomena called matter, and you have the phenomena called energy, you see. So those are two ideas which are obviously extremely basic. And they all have all different kinds of subdivisions, how many different types of matter are there? But I'm not going to go into any of that. But these are the two, 
what's called fundamental constituents of a creation. Now, that's these two, two. Now, the third component, which is essential, and by the way, just as an aside, uh, Alf, uh, Albert Einstein, he said, you know, that matter and energy are identical. That was the incredible uh, theory that he came out with. It's called the theory of relativity. I mean, there's much more to that theory than just this statement. But this became one of the most famous of all concepts in all of science, that really <clears throat> matter is frozen energy. That's what matter is. So if you can somehow unfreeze matter, it would be a colossal amount of energy. Uh, and that's really what the atomic bomb is. It's when matter is broken, you see. And, you know, it's, it's, it's subjected to what's called fission. And all of a sudden, the matter, or a part of the matter, I should say, turns to pure energy. In other words, there's a certain amount of the matter, very little, that becomes its what, what, what composes the matter, which is pure energy. And the amount of energy is so vast, and that's what we see as an atomic bomb. Anyway, he's the one who said that, and that became one of the most famous concepts in all of science, that matter and energy are identical, that matter is really frozen energy, and therefore you can convert one form to the other. But in any case, the main idea is that matter and energy comprise, you see, the, uh, the, one of the basic fabric of the, uh, the entire creation. So you have matter, you have energy, and then you have the third idea is called space. Now, nobody knows what space is, you see, but it somehow allows matter to expand. Without space, matter cannot expand, you see. So space is something that allows matter to expand in. Very interesting. You know, what is also so interesting is if you go to outer space and you put up your hands, let's say you go uh, into outer space, right? And while you're in space, outer space, you take your hand <clears throat> and you raise your right hand and then opposite to that, you raise your left hand. Well, the question is what's in between, right? And the answer is basically nothing. But that's not true. Because between your right hand and your left hand, there is space. But space is nothing. You see, that's the interesting paradox to all this. That space exists, yet it's really nothing. There's no matter or energy in between your two hands. Yet there is a thing called space. And nobody knows what that is. You see. So in any case, so space allows matter to extend or expand into. And we know, of course, that space expands or extends in three ways. You have length, width, and height. Those are three directions. And therefore, we live basically in a three-dimensional universe or a three-dimensional spatial universe, you see. So what do we have so far? We have matter, energy, space. So those so far are the three components that go into the creation. Now, the fourth component is time, 
right? Now, nobody knows what time is either. What is time? But time allows matter to have a duration. It has a continuity. So when matter has a continuity of existence, we call that time. That it exists in time, and therefore matter can continue to exist. Now, we don't know what that is. What, what, what is time, really? You know, we observe things that exist in time. We have no idea what time is. You see, Zman, we don't know what that is. Yet, matter, energy, space, and time, these are four fundamental components of the Bria of creation. You see. So, those are four things. Then there's what's called a fifth thing. What is that? And that is called life. What is life? Nobody really knows. Is a virus alive? Or is it dead? And scientists have, or biologists have, what's called criteria for this. You see, and they try to answer, is this thing living or not living? Nobody knows. Nobody knows if a virus is living or not. It seems to be living because it obviously can kill people, you see. But then it doesn't manifest the properties of life. It doesn't reproduce, really. You see, it doesn't eat in that sense, you know, and, and so on. It doesn't have a lot of features of life, you see. But there is a phenomena phenomenon called life. Chius. Chayim. And we don't really know what that is. Nobody even knows really, you know, what in a human being is alive, really. We move around, but nobody knows exactly what is happening, you know. So life is a fifth component of the Bria, where things are alive, you see. They are not inanimate. They are alive which means that they subscribe to various properties or features, and we say we call that life. That's five. Then there's a sixth thing, and again, and nobody knows what this is either, or they don't know what the makeup is, and that's called consciousness. What is consciousness or awareness? We know it because we have it, you know, all of a sudden, you're conscious, which means you can look, see, you are aware. But what is it? Where does it come from? Nobody knows. It's one of the greatest mysteries of all. What is consciousness? What produces it? You see? And where does it go when you go to sleep? Nobody really knows. They may have some theories about that, but they don't really know what these things are. So consciousness clearly is a very significant aspect of being, isn't it? Obviously. Because without consciousness, there's no awareness, you see. So that is the sixth very important idea, consciousness. So, so far we have six, what's called the fundamental phenomena of the Bria that God made in the Bria, you see, and they are the fundamental components of the creation. But then there's also a seventh, 
which is very interesting. And what is that seventh? It is called motion, movement. You're not aware of this, but everything in the universe is in motion, you see. And you're not aware of this. You think, well, you go to sleep, but what's in motion? You know, you are just uh, sleeping, you're not moving, but that's not true. Every atom in the universe is in motion, you see. And the, uh, the concept of motion gives rise to the concept of heat. Heat is nothing more than atoms, or more accurately, molecules, in motion. The greater the motion of an atom or molecule, the hotter something is. Because when you touch something that's hot, what you're really touching or feeling is molecular motion, you see? So if something is 5,000 degrees and you touch it, the motion of the molecules or the atoms in that substance is beyond belief. And it will rip your finger apart. You experience it as heat, you see. But what you're really experiencing is molecular motion. Now scientists for hundreds of years, they didn't know what it was. And finally they have the theory of what motion really is. Now on the opposite end, if everything is in motion, that means nothing is still. Nothing. When something is still, what does that mean, for instance? Let's assume you have uh, a steel cylinder, right? That atoms in that steel cylinder, they're all in motion. That means they're all moving. They're vibrating, you see. Every single atom, atom in that steel cylinder is in motion. It's astounding when you think about that. Now, why are they in motion? What makes them move? Nobody knows. It's unknown. The interesting thing is that you could think about, well, can I stop the motion? Can I actually freeze the atom where it doesn't move? That's a very interesting concept. And scientists believe, and when all things, all atoms in an object stand still and do not move, that's called absolute zero. Now remember what heat is. It's molecular motion that you experience when you touch it. What is cold? Cold is the opposite. It's what you feel when you're touching an object that the atoms in the object are moving very slowly. And therefore you experience it as cold, you see. Now, you can take that object, it's possible, to almost stop the motion of all atoms. But if that's the case, and by the way, the Fahrenheit temperature of absolute zero, which means all atoms stop, there's no motion at all, which is incredible. That's, if I remember correctly, 459.67 degrees below zero. The universe outside and outer space right, is almost absolute zero. I think it's three degrees above zero, you see. But absolute zero is 459.67. I mean, that's what it is. And at that point, 
that's called its temperature, and at that point, all atoms stop. I think in Celsius, it's 273 degrees below zero, you see. But in any case, um, now, nobody has ever reached absolute zero, or they're trying. But what's interesting is that scientists have actually achieved a phenomenal uh, result, and they have brought down uh, whatever, be helium, hydrogen, whatever, to minus two, minus one-tenth of one percent of one billionth of a degree toward absolute zero. Imagine that's how close, that's how close they've come to absolute zero. But the amazing thing is, why is everything in motion? You see? Nobody knows. But we see that motion is a fundamental component of the entire Bria. Got that? So what do we have? We have a, fun, a, a very fascinating idea that there are seven components that make up the Bria, the creation. And we don't really know what these things are. I mean, we know what they are. We have no idea what they really mean or what's behind these phenomena. So again, you have matter, energy, space, time, life, consciousness, and motion. Isn't that interesting? That these are fundamental, and everything in the Bria goes through this. So, these are seven components that constitute the Bria, and the Rabbanishim, like I say, made them. And that's what he wanted to do, you see. So, that's the beginning of our understanding of what the Bria is, you see, or what the components are. Now, what's important to know is that these are the components of Oilam Hazer, which I will talk about. We do not know what the components are of the spiritual dimension. We don't really know. You know, we don't know the, the, we don't know the matter, the composition of a malach. We have no idea. You see, we don't know if it exists. Malachim seems to exist in time. Do they exist in space? We don't know. You see? Uh, are they always in motion? Well, maybe. You see? They have a whole different set of rules in that Bria, which is important. But in our Bria, which is Ilam Hazer, as I will explain, these seven ideas certainly is what the fabric of the Bria is composed of. Now, the next thing, so that's the composition, basically, of the creation itself. Now, the next thing we have to ask ourselves is, okay, there is God and there is the Bria, which I have mentioned seven different components or basic structural components. The question we have to ask now before anything is what's called motive. Why would God make this Bria? What does he need it for? I would imagine it's a monumental headache for which he's probably taking a huge dose of Excedrin, which is an aspirin. When you take a look at how much bad is in this Bria, but we, have, we certainly can ask, why did you make this? You don't need it. Because remember, the Rosham is limitless. He's infinite. 
He's independent of anything. Doesn't need anything, you know. And he has no deficiencies. What do they need this for? So the Torah actually answers the question. And the answer is, it says in the Torah, to do good to you in your end. Yeah. Which is interesting. That is why he created everything. Because he wants to be native. He wants to do good. You see. And therefore, he wants beings that exist that he will be able to bestow an infinite state of goodness on these beings. You see? Now, uh, we can ask a question. Wait a minute. Why do you want to do that? In other words, what's the motive of the motive? Okay, I understand. It's very nice. You want to create, uh, you know, individuals, whatever, and you want to bestow an infinite state of goodness. I mean, that's, that's incredible, you see. But why do you want to do that? In other words, what's the motive of the motive? Or what they say, what's the real motive, you see? And the answer to that is, nobody knows. It's unknown. God has never revealed the motive of the motive. Nobody knows that. He has his own reasons why he wanted to bring in or create a creation, right? And why he wants to create beings in that creation, right? And why he wants to bestow goodness. Nobody knows. He certainly didn't have to do it, like I say. You see? And the concept, some people say, well, what God wanted was that people should be aware of who he is, his incredible midas. But of course that's not true, you see, because God doesn't need anybody to recognize who he is. It's irrelevant to him. You see, he, he is what he is. He knows who he is. In fact, he's the only one who knows who he is, you know. So the interesting thing about it is that even if we recognized the attributes of God, they're not really his attributes. As you will see, he created those attributes, you see. They're all part of creation, which most people don't understand. We don't know who God is. I was, uh, and I, one, one day, I have given a share about this, who is God. Uh, but nobody knows who God is. Even angels don't know who God is. They have no concept. That's why in the Kedusha, when we pray, Davin, we say, I am him kom you know, from where can we praise him? Nobody knows, you see. And uh, only God knows where he is. In any case, this concept of the motive of the motive is unknown. God has only revealed the immediate motive, but he has never revealed the ultimate motive. You see, if he will ever reveal the ultimate motive, that is, that is unknown. It could be that the ultimate motive is incomprehensible and it's only known to God because perhaps only God could understand why he did something, you know, uh, at his level of intelligence, whatever. But in any case, so this is a very important idea. It's also very comforting to know that God created everything for goodness, you see. And the, like I say, the reality, the real motive is unknown. Now, if I asked you, okay, 
what is the greatest good that God can give? What is it? In other words, if God would ask you, for instance, I want to bestow on you a gift which, of which there is no greater one, what would that be? And the answer is really quite simple. The answer is existence. I want to be. That's what it is. So the greatest good that God decided to give a being is to exist in the best possible way. So we now understand a very fundamental idea. The motive of the Bria is purely Hatova. And there is no real other reason. Like I say, God does not need us to recognize who he is. And if in anything, those are all secondary. But primarily, he did not create us at all for anything that he needs, because he doesn't need anything. Okay, and we also know what the greatest gift is, which is to be existence itself. Now, how is this going to happen? So God decided what's called, well, how do I bring, or rather, how do I give people existence? And the answer to that is, God says, I am existence, which is a whole topic in itself. In other words, God, and I will elaborate this in a future shir, God doesn't have existence. He is existence. And there's a world of a difference between the two concepts. So God says that I am existence, In other words, I am the concept or the phenomenon of existence. And therefore, I can create. I can bring things into existence, which I will do. And I will allow these beings who will come into existence, right, that I will not only give them existence, but I will give them existence eternally, you see. And therefore, the desire of God is that man is dovuk, dvekus, when man becomes attached to God. Now, we don't know what that means, really. However, what it does say is that there is dvekus, which is an attachment to God. And in that way, we exist. But we exist in the greatest possible way, you see. And that is what God wants to give. So that atavah, that goodness, that God wants to give is dvekus, which is some type of an attachment, a closeness, a bonding, if you will, to God himself. Now, what is interesting is that, and there's something that most people don't realize. Now, we know everything has variations. Everything has degrees, amount, variations, and so on. But there are certain things which are what's called dichotomy. It's either A or B. There's no in-between. There are no levels of degrees. Now, if you think about it, existence is one of them. You either exist or you don't exist. There's no in-between, you see. So we say that the phenomenon of existence is a dichotomy, which means it can only be A or B. It can't be degrees. You can't exist more 
You can't exist less. You exist. Either you do or you don't. You see? So therefore, it would be interesting. What happens if you could exist more? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, experiencing life more. No. I'm talking about existence itself. Can you exist more at all? And that's interesting. And the answer is yes. What does that mean? That means if God wants, he can bring you closer to him. And since he is existence, you will exist more. Now, we don't know what that means. We have never experienced existence in degrees. We have no idea what that means. Where a person either exists or he doesn't exist. You see? What does it mean to exist more? We don't know. However, really when you think about it, if God is existence, if he wants, he can make you exist more than you exist now. And the way he would do that is making you dovok in him. So what happens, therefore, is dvekus, is an actual state in which you exist more. You see, and that is why it's like nothing you've ever experienced. And nobody knows what that is. Malachim have no idea what that is. Like I say, because existence is a phenomenon, whether you exist or you don't exist. There's no such thing as more existence. What does it even mean? Yet, what God does, and this is the ultimate reward, or the essential reward, is through dvekas. And now you begin to understand what dvekas is. What ultimately it leads to, see, you exist more because you are attached to God. Now, we don't know what that means. What does it mean to be attached to God? But this is what happens, as we see, in the future world that everybody is in a state of dvekus, and therefore they actually exist more because they are closer to God and since God is existence or that's the way we experience Him therefore we exist more you see how it all adds up into one beautiful uh, unified system you see okay so we now understand what the Hatova is, minimally. That the Hatova is where you will exist more. And what the interesting is, thing is that as you get closer and closer to God, you bond with Him, right? Then your existence will increase from moment to moment, which is incredible. And apparently, it can go on forever, you see you can get closer and closer to God, which means you can have greater and greater existence itself. And there's no end. So that is really the essential reward, not reward, excuse me, is the essential hatova, or goodness, that God wants to give. Now besides that, there are other things that happen in terms of goodness, you know, I'm sure a lot of things happen, for instance, uh, the tremendous amount of pleasures and so on. But what's interesting that happened, uh, you know, we, we don't know exactly what pleasures, but there is a concept of Hanor, you see, and that's what Chazal say, 
that tzaddikim sit with crowns on their heads, and they are ne'er They benefit or they derive pleasure from the ziv of the shrina, you see, from the splendor of the shrina. That means a very interesting concept, that it's not a cold experience where, well, I exist more, now what? No. Apparently, the more you exist, the greater is the pleasure that you get. Now, again, we don't know what that means because we don't know what it means to exist more. But the pleasure is infinite. To be close to God, when you really are close, which will be in a future world, then the pleasure that you derive is infinite. We don't know exactly why that occurs. We don't know exactly what that experience is. But that is an infinite pleasure. And that's what it means that you are tzaddikim sit and they derive pleasure from the splendor of the Shekhinah. You see, they derive pleasure from the attachment itself, which is a very important concept. That's why Dvekas, clinging to God, is the ultimate state that a person wants to achieve. It goes on and on, you see. Okay, now, God now has to make, we now understand two fundamental ideas. Well, we understand the fabric of creation, you see. We understand, like I told you, the seven components. We, understand, we now understand the motive, you see. And we understand the concept of Dvikus. Now, this is what God wants to give to a human being. So what does he do? He now has to make a fundamental decision. Is he going to create a human being and give this human being, right, this reward or rather this goodness for free? You know, it's for free in the sense that you don't have to do a thing for this. You will be immediately created and you will be created in a state of dracus, which is beyond belief. Or God has to decide, no, you have to do something to earn. And therefore the dvekas will be a reward. Now, this is a monumental decision. You see? Because if you are given this dvekas for free, at whatever time it will be given, right? Then that's phenomenal. You don't have to do anything. As soon as you are created, you are in a state of dvekas. You see? And, and this will go on forever. Because God is forever. You see? Like it says, I am the first and I am the last. Right? God doesn't end. He's infinitely, you know, time-wise and so on. So therefore, as a result of that, you will be in a, dve- a state of Vegas for, in- for all time, eternally, which we cannot even begin to imagine what eternity is. Could you imagine a billion years pass and you have not even scratched the surface of eternity? Because what's a billion years to eternity? Zero, you see. But what God has to decide is does he want to give this to you without any effort? And that's called absolute or pure chesed, kindness, because you do nothing to deserve that. Or will God have give it to you only if you take on a task and you complete the task? 
In other words, you have to expend effort. You have to work for this. Is he going to give you that because of work? Not as a gift, but that's scary. Why? Now, that is called din, justice. What is justice? Justice doesn't mean if you do something bad, right? Evil, that you get punished. No. Justice is a concept of cause and effect. If you do A, right, then B happens. So you must cause B, you see. That's the concept of din or justice. And it applies to anything. For instance, if you do something good, you will be rewarded. That's justice. If you do something evil, you will be punished. That's also justice. Justice is not related to what you do, you see. It's related to the fact that you do, and therefore there's an effect. There's a consequence to your acts. So God has to decide between uh, effort or gift, you see, in order to bestow the goodness. So now this is risky. Why? Because if that's the formula where you have to do something, the problem is, right, is that it's true that you have, you have to be the cause of your own reward, but it's risky because what happens if you don't do the work? That you don't receive anything. You see? So there is a risk in that choice. Now, God decided that you must work. You have to expend effort in order to get this reward, which is dvekus. And that's the reward, you see? So if you have to do work, then what you get as a consequence is called reward, you see? If you don't have to do any work, it's given to you right away, then that's not reward, it's called a matana. It's called a gift. So God makes a monumental decision that in order to get dvekus, which is the, well, we will talk about that, the future world, you must work. You must expend efforts to do this. It's not a gift. And if you expend the effort, then fine, you will receive the reward. And if you don't, then you don't receive the reward. Reward. Now, it's not as simple as I just said, as I will explain. But right now, this is a basic idea, you see. And that's called din. So God created the world through the phenomenon called din, which is justice, but what it really is, as they said, cause and effect. And that is a very important concept, the concept of cause and effect, you see. Now, why did he do it? I gave a shear about this a shir which is called Bread of Shame, Nahamadik Sufa, which you can look up. And I went into what's called the Arichus. I went into detail what that is and why we have to work for it. I mean, essentially the simple idea is because there is something to be had if you work for something. Somehow it makes you feel much greater if you cause something. There's a greater sense of self there's a greater awareness of who you are because you are a true cause, you see. And God wants that. He wants a person not only to experience Vegas, but to experience Vegas that he is responsible for, to create Vegas 
that he created, in a sense, that he caused. And what that will do to that person is give him a greater sense of being, a greater sense of self, much greater sense of self, because he actually caused something, you see? And we'll, I'm going to talk about that in a short while. So that's called Naamadik Sufa, or Bread of Shame, which God decided to do. And that's a very important idea, you see. Now, I will deal with the fact that, well, what happens if you don't do anything, or you don't do enough, then you don't get the reward. We will see that that's not the case. Even though the fundamental formula or equation is you must do the work, and then you will get the reward, you see. Now, this automatically necessitates two things. It necessitates two places. If God decided that you have to work, you have to expend effort, then clearly he's got to give you a place for this. And then after you finish with that place, and hopefully you will have done whatever he wants you to do, which is the effort, the work, right? There will be another place, right, where you can earn or you can have the dvekas, you see? So therefore, this decision where you have to earn the reward necessitates creating two different domains. First domain is Ilam Hazer, this world. That's really what the essential idea of this world is. And it necessitates creating Ilam Habo, the future world. That's why we have two different worlds. Because Hazer is a world of work. It's a place where you actually do what you have to do, which, that which is required to experience the dvekas to God. And the second is Oilam Habo, the future world, which is where you experience that reward. The interesting thing about it is that that reward is eternal. That's a very important idea. Oilam Hazer only will go on not more than 6,000 years. That's the maximum. As the Gemara says, Shiso Alfeshnin Hevu Almo. The world will exist for 6,000 years. And then it's over, which I've talked about. You see. So Ilam Hazer is only for 6,000 years. We are very much at the end of it. We only have 219 years to go in the year 5,782. Actually, we have 218 years to go. You see. But Ilam Habo where you experience the Devekas is infinite. Or I should say more accurately, it's eternal. It never ends. Never. So automatically, what a difference between the time periods of both worlds. So in a certain sense, this is a tremendous chesed of God. Because the work itself, as we will see what that is, is only a very short amount of time, relatively speaking, to Yom Habo. It's only 6,000 years, or whatever that is. But Ulam Habo, the future world, right, is eternal. It never ends. So that's really, even though God made it, that you have to work for your reward, which is Dvekas, attachment to God, it's eternal. That's a tremendous chesed. You see, imagine you go to work for somebody, and he says, okay, you're going to work for me, 
And the work you have to do is, um, you know, is, let's say, uh, a month. A month? Yeah. And if you work for me for a month, your boss says, I will give you $1 billion. You look at the guy like he's out of his mind, you see. That's, that, that itself, that comparison I just gave you, is nothing compared to what God did. We work for, what do we work for? We live what? Uh, you know, if you're lucky, you live to 90 years old, 100 years old, I mean, whatever, right? Most people live far shorter, right? Okay, that's all you live and finished. That's the amount of time that you have to labor. But the reward is not 90 years. It's eternity. Compare the two, you see? So even though, and this is the beginning of understanding, you know, how much God wants us to be there, right? So even though we only work for, let's say, 90 years, the reward we experience for eternity, I mean, that is beyond belief. You see? So, it's not as bad as you think. Okay. But, in those 90 years, for instance, that you live, you do have to do the right job. So, that's the caveat. That's the condition. You see? Uh, so, we now understand why there is an Olim Habo and an Olim Hazir. Because once the choice was made that you need to work to get the reward, right, then you need two places. But like I say, the incredible thing is that one place is nothing compared to the length of time of the other place. You see, so it's not as bad as it sounds. You see, in any case, we now know why there's an ilm hazer, and we now know why there is a ilm habo. Okay, and I am going to proceed, continue. This is part one, and I'm going to proceed, continue with what's called the blueprints of creation. What are the things that are necessary for God's project or program to materialize? And all of these, you begin to see that these are not by accident. They're all there because they're all part of the building, the construction of the edifice that is called the creation itself. And I will continue with the blueprints you see, and then a great deal of things will become much clearer as a result. Any questions? I have a question. Good. You, men- you mentioned the um, the ziv. <clears throat> you mentioned the, what? Yeah. Uh, the ziv of the shechina. I saw yes. that before, before, and I didn't underst- I didn't know what it was. Could you explain that? what it is and why it's called that, or what, like where it's... <clears throat> well, if you think about it, you know, if you experience something, um, let's say you meet a person, right, then there are different things that emanate from that person. First of all, there's the body itself, you see, and then there's the head. Now, when you look at a guy's head, whoever you look at, a woman's head, whatever, right, you know, that's different than looking at the body because there's some type of life force that emanates from the head. It's a different experience looking at that, you see. And then when you look at the person's eyes, not the head, but the eyes itself, the eyes in many ways 
is where life and existence is centered. Eyes are revealing. You know, it's amazing if you know how, how much you can read of a person by looking into his eyes. Even medically it's true, you see. So these are different aspects of experiencing another person. Same thing with God. The Shekhinah, which is the presence of God as he manifests himself in this earth in general, and also as he manifests itself himself throughout all the spiritual worlds, right? <clears throat> there are different degrees of experiencing the Shekhinah, you see. You can experience the Shekhinah, for instance, at the level of the lowest sphere, which is called Malchus, you see. So you're experiencing God, the presence of God, at the, the level of light, you see, of Malchus, which is the lowest sphere, you can experience God at the level of Keser, which is the crown. That's the first sphere. Are the two spheres equal? Of course not. One is almost infinitely greater, Keser, crown, than Malchus, which is kingship, you see. Uh, so that's what it says. You experience the Ziv of the Shekhinah, which is you're experiencing the Shekhinah at a certain level of holiness, you see. And in that level itself, there is almost an infinite degrees of experience, you see. So that's what Ziv HaShekhinah is. It is telling you that you experience God, and that's what they will all do. They will experience the splendor of the Shekhinah, you see. In other words, it's not that you'll experience the Shekhinah directly because that's too lofty but you will experience what is called the uh, the manifestation of the Shekhinah at a level which is like I say beyond belief so that's what it's expressing it's expressing that you will experience the Shekhinah at a level of a very high sphere which really is Keser you see so that's what you really uh, when you learn that, that's what you're looking at. Okay, so I also saw like the words za and nuk, and they were also speaking about like through the sefira. <laughs> what are yes. those? What are those? Well, za stands for zeanpen, and nuk is nukvo. <clears throat> you see, <clears throat> I once mentioned there are ten spheres, right? And these are ten different emanations that God sends forth. And these forces, that's really what they are, in each of these forces is the Ainsoif, which is the presence of God. Okay? And these spheres are really vessels that contain the Ainsoif. These are conduits in which is embedded aspects of the Infinite One, which is God. But in any case, so therefore there are ten. But they are subdivided. When they operate, they operate in core what's called groups. So when uh, the fourth sphere is called chesed. So when chesed operates, many times it will operate not in and of itself as chesed, whatever that sphere is. But it will operate with five others. So there are six spheres acting together, almost like a company. 
תייב חסד גבורו, תפרס, נצח הויד הניסויד. actually combine and they operate in tandem with each other to produce a certain result. So that's called Zeanpin, Za. Now, Malchus will also operate, but it basically operates by itself. And that's called Nukva, which means feminine, the Kevo, you see. <clears throat> so those are, and these, by the way, when spheres operate in tandem with other spheres, They are called Patsufim. A Patsuf is a configuration. A Patsuf is really, uh, looking at a Patsuf is like looking at a face, where you're looking at a composite of nose, eyes, ears, forehead, hair, beard, mouth, tongue. All of that together is a face. It's called a configuration. That's called a Patsuf. So when spheres act together, You see, as a group, it's called the Patsuf. So instead of saying, well, from Chesed to Yisoyed, right, from number four to number nine, no. So we say the Patsuf or the grouping called uh, Zeampin. Zeampin, okay, which is the, uh, uh, the smaller face, whatever, and so on, see? Uh, so that's how we refer to a specific combination of spheres operating. <clears throat> okay. what's also good to know is that the seven spheres each one and together created the Ilm Hazir that is why there are seven days you see because each sphere of Chesed created the world on Sunday you see and then Gvura on Monday and so on so you have seven days each one created by one sphere of And the totality of all the days, you see, is the configuration of Za together with Nukva, which is Malchus. So all seven spheres, the lower seven, they created Ilm Hazer. And the top three, because there are ten of them, which is Kesa, Chochman, Bina, they create the upper worlds. Mostly, they create the uh, Yemoisa Mashiach, They will give the energy and the light, the ha'orah, the ore of the Moshe Mashiach, and also Ilam Habo. You see. So when you were talking about the Parsufim, so that's why each Sefirah is like, like how they say the right arm, the left arm, the... Yes, because the human body is a model of the ten spheres. <clears throat> that's really what it is. The human body is the model of the ten spheres. You have the, if you want to know what they are, the crown, or rather the skull, right, is basically Kesha, and Chochman Bina is the, the uh, two brains, and then there's a, th- well, I don't get into it, but there's really three brains. You have the cerebellum, cere- cerebrum, and the medulla oblongata. Those are three. But basically, there's two. So the skull is Chesed. And those two brains are Chochman Bina. The right arm is Chesed. The left arm is Gfura. The torso is Tferes. The right leg is Netzach. The left leg is Hoid. And the genital region, 
is Yisoyed and Malchus. So a human being mirrors. It's like a copy in physical form of the ten spheres. And that is why a human being is called the image of God. Because if you would line up the spheres, right, they would look like a human. That's how they would shape up. <clears throat> you see, in fact, I'll tell you something interesting. If you take the name of God, right, which is Yud K Vav K, a Yud and then a Hey, and then a Vav and then a Hey, right? The Yud just write. If you would write it out, not from right to left, but from top to bottom. So you write a Yud, right? Underneath that Yud, you write a Hey, which has three sides, right? And then you put a Vav right under that or in the middle of the hay down and then you write another hay. You will notice that that forms a human. The yud is the head. The hay is the right and left arm with the shoulder. Then you have a vov, which is a torso. And then you have a hay, which is the right arm and the left arm. The left leg, right leg, left leg. That actually forms a human. Those letters written from top to bottom, form a human, you see. But in any case, um, a human being is a physical model of uh, the uh, ten spheres. Anything else? So let's say when we use our human body and we use it uh, to sin. What, say that what again? Happens Let's say, okay, usually when we sin, we're using our, our physical body. So if our physical body is uh, basically a, a model for the Sifi dog, and yes. uh, so what happens when we sin to those Sifi dogs? And what happens when what? When, when we sin, what happens to the Sifi dogs? Well, I don't want to get too much involved, but the... The spheres are divided into 613 parts. Ten spheres are divided into 613 parts. But there are also, as they say, 365, they call it sinews, and 248 organs. So that totals 613, right? 365 and 248 Right? That totals the human. So each part of every sphere, or I should say all 613 parts of all the 10 spheres, correspond to some organ or tissue in the human body. And there are 613 commandments. <coughs> you see? So when you do a commandment, when you do a mitzvah, you see, oh. it, un- it unblocks that particular organ that corresponds to that mitzvah. Which car- what was that? Mute yourself. Keep going. Ca- when you do a mitzvah of the 613 commandments, that automatically enlightens, you see, it sanctifies the very organ that it corresponds to of the 613 parts of a human, which corresponds to the 613 parts in the 10 spheres, you see? 
and automatically it energizes that particular organ called zikuch. So when you do all the mitzvahs, 613 mitzvahs, you are energizing all 613 organs, or whatever they're called, which energizes all 613 parts of the spheres, which energizes all the spheres. You see, it's a parallel. Ten spheres, 613 sections of those spheres, 613 parts in the body, human body, which correspond to 613 mitzvahs. You see? So every mitzvah corresponds to an organ which corresponds to one of the sections of the spheres. And by doing all the tayyad, basically, you energize or you spiritualize, which is a better word, the entire human body to exist in the future world. You see? So that's how it works. So it's interesting to study. But when you sin in one of the mitzvahs, so what you do is you cloud over or you cover the corresponding organ which covers the corresponding section of the spheres, you see, which covers the light coming out of the sphere. And then once it's covered, so the sutton can nourish from that particular organ because you've covered it. So it can nourish from that organ and what that produces, it allows, it's an entry point for pathogens, bacteria, viruses, or molds, or fungi, whatever. So that can now prey on that area of the body that you've covered spiritually. So the origin of all disease is sin on that particular organ. And therefore the answer to that, or the tikkun, is if you knew which organ corresponds to what mitzvah, which corresponds to which aspect of the spheres, if you knew which one was affected, you would know if, and if you knew how to do tshuva, to repent on that particular sin, you would automatically be cured of every single disease. But that would require a Kabbalistic doctor. And I don't think the AMA is too happy with that. You see. But that is really what's Kabbalistic medicine. That's what the Ari used to do. You walk, people walk into the Ari and they were sick, whatever. And he would immediately know what their sin was based on the symptom, the organ that was affected. Because he knew which organ corresponded to which which organ corresponds to which mitzvah or vera, and therefore which section of the spheres, you see? And he knew exactly that whatever was happening is a result of the sin occluding that particular area. So he would tell that person, you need to do tshuva, this is your tikkun. And guess what? The person would do it, immediately removing the cover. And therefore, once that happens, then the pathogen, which is attacking it, whatever that is, immediately would uh, die by itself, you see, and the person would be cured. It's an interesting form of medicine, you see. And all of this, by the way, was revealed in the Sefer Raziel HaMalach that was concealed, the Sefer Refus, that was concealed by Chizkiyohu. Uh, that's how they did it. 
In those days, they had a sefer that revealed all this. You see, which organ was connected to which aspect of the spheres, connected to which sin or mitzvah. So what they would do, if they got sick in any way, they would just do the tikkun, they would do tshuva, and they would be cured. But Chizkiyohu re- realized that people are not going to do, you know, they're going to do tshuva in order to get rid of the disease, not because they want to do tshuva. So he therefore decided to hide that book, you see? And the rabbis were uh, in accordance, they agreed with him. So that book is hidden somewhere in Jerusalem. And that book is, tells you how to cure every disease known to mankind based on the Kabbalistic structure of a human being. I would guess it's somewhere in the base Amigdash, which means somewhere underground, where they hid all the kalim, all the vessels of the base Amigdash. They hid that book too. But it's there. It's somewhere. You know, he hid it. So you can imagine what kind of gold mine that would be, right? But then the companies would never allow that because they would never have to sell you drugs because you don't need drugs. You just have to do tshuva. So clearly they would do everything that they could to destroy that book. That book is the most dangerous uh, book to Big Farm. I guarantee you that, you know. Okay. Is there any is there any Kabbalistic rabbis in our time living? There are, I imagine so. Why do we know about so. them? Well, the idea is because if you knew about them, they'd have a line outside their door that would snake around the earth four times. I know, but wouldn't that bring the, the tikkun, the ultimate tikkun for Am Yisrael, and then the Mashiach would come? No, because the intent would God. It would be to get rid of the disease. Right? And that's one of the reasons, that's the reason why he hid it. Because people resorting to that book, Sefer Rezil Amalek, the Sefer Refus, they were resorting to that without uh, doing it for the purposes of serving God. So that would not bring a tikkun. Yeah, it would get rid of the disease, that's true. You know? No, so but then of we would doing, all be, all our... But no, but but then all of us would be aligned with our Svidah and the 613 mitzvah, and then the Shefa would come straight down to B'nai Israel and not go to the Satan. Not necessarily, because what a critical part of a mitzvah is the physical act and the intent. You are discounting the intent. Kavana, intention, is critical to bring down the awe of the spheres. Remember, mitzvah consists of two sections. One is the physical section, and the second thing is the intent. When you do the mitzvah, what are you thinking about? What's your intent? That's part of bringing down the spheres. And that's a very important part of the mitzvah. So that would not be solved. You see. In any case, we don't have it. It's somewhere. And, uh, you know, so a person has to do tshuva. Okay. Any more questions? Rabbi. Yeah. Rabbi, the concept of the vacas, yes. if um, 
you had said before that Rabona Shalom sends us concepts to the world so that we can understand things and maybe now the way you laid this out about we we have this consciousness, our awareness. It yes. sounds like it sounds like maybe he sent the concept of retirement, like a, a retirement plan to help us understand the vacas. How so? Because it's like the vacas is we're going to work for it. And our retirement, yes. like in, in, we have a modern society, so we're all like working and everyone can't wait until they can retire. Like they really can't wait. Well, what, what you mean, you mean this, is that uh, there are two periods in a person's life. One is work, and the other thing is to enjoy the labor or the results of your work. That's called retirement, right? Right. Yeah, okay. In that sense, you're right. There are two, there are two periods in creation. One is Oilem Hazeh, which is the world of work, labor effort. Then there's the Oilem Haba, which is the world of reward, you know, where it, and that goes on for eternity. So you are right in that sense. 